This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. This week, in celebration of hip-hop's 50th anniversary, we're featuring interviews from our archive with some of the groundbreaking performers. Our first interview today is with Daryl McDaniels, co-founder of Run DMC, one of the early hip-hop groups to break into the mainstream. They had their first hit back in 1983, It's Like That. In 1984, they became the first rappers to earn a gold album. The next year, they were the first to earn a platinum. They were the first rap group to have their videos played on MTV and the first to appear on the cover of Rolling Stone. Run DMC was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2009, making them the second hip-hop group to make it after Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. The group stopped recording albums after its member DJ Jam Master J was shot and killed in a recording studio in Queens, New York in 2002. Daryl McDaniels is the DMC in Run DMC, Run is Reverend Joseph Run Simmons, whose brother is Russell Simmons. Run DMC performed earlier this month at the star-studded Hip Hop 50 concert in Yankee Stadium. Before we hear the interview I recorded with Daryl McDaniels in 1997, here he is on Sucker MC, the B-side of Run DMC's first record, It's Like That. I'm DMC in the place to be. I go to St. John's University. Daryl McDaniels, welcome to Fresh Air. Um, let's talk about the history of Run DMC, which spans a lot of the history of rap. But before we do, um, uh, I had asked you before what you prefer that I call you, and you have a great rhyme that answers that question. <laughs> Would you just do that rhyme for us? Yeah, um, well, you can call me Daryl, you can call me D, you can call me Daryl Mack, or you can call me DMC. People always ask me, what does my name mean? D's for never dirty, MC for mostly clean. But sometimes I tell them when certain people ask that DMC means that Daryl makes cash. <laughs> That's good. How did you first hear rap? Wow, that's a good question. Um, the first time I ever heard rap was back in 1970, I think it was either 76 or 78. Um, there was a radio um, show. It was like um, an underground radio show, and the disc jockey's name was Eddie Chiba. And um, the station was in New York. It was WFUV. 
And that was the first time I ever heard rap. He had a rhyme where he said, when you mess around in New York town, you go down with the disco Chiba clown. You go down, go down, go down, go down, you go down. You know, it was really simple. But the first time I ever heard rap was back in 76 or 78 on WFUV DJ Eddie Chiba. Now, what made you think, I want to do that? Well, um, when I first started out, I wanted to be a DJ. Um, I really liked um, the scratching and the quick mixing and, um, you know, doing the DJ thing, spinning records and mixing records back and forth. And then out of, um, you know, listening to DJs and studying Grandmaster Flash, um, I started hearing, you know, tapes of DJ Starsky and uh, Melly Mel and Cool Modine and Treacherous 3. And, it, and um, something just sparked in me where I wanted to become a vocalist and express myself on the microphone. So did you sing before you started rhyming? No, I didn't. <laughs> I started rhyming first. Um, and what were your very early rhymes like? Oh, well, the very early, my very early rhymes were, um, you know, basically simple, talking about I had the best rhymes, nobody had more rhymes than me, my DJ was the best DJ, we had the loudest sound system, Um, you know, it's simple stuff like C to an apple, apple to a core, I am the man with the rhymes galore, rock around for me, rock around for you, and everybody catch the boogaloo flu, Um, Hollis Queens is where I'm from, don't be stupid, don't be so dumb, so it's basically boasting about my neighborhood, me being the best MC and nobody can take me out. Speaking of your neighborhood, you're, you're from Hollis, Queens yes, uh, in New York, and the two other members of Run DMC are from the same neighborhood, I think, yes. and, and you were, went to school together, right? You knew each yeah, other we, before you were a group. Yeah, definitely. We all lived in five blocks of each other. We went to elementary and high school and college together. So uh, when did you actually form Run DMC? Where were you in, in your school years? Um, well, me and Run first started rhyming and DJing together in my basement. I actually taught Run how to DJ. He was rapping first, then I taught him how to DJ, how to do the quick mix, and how to spin records back, and how to um, blend two, two of the same records together. So Run and DMC was like formed back in 19, I think it was around 1980. We started DJing in my basement, and then when he got... Um, he got better equipment to me for Christmas, so we started DJing in his attic. So I would say Run DMC was formed right then. And then as the group, um, it was 1982 when we put together It's Like That and That's the Way It Is a Sucker MCs, which was our first single. And then we needed a DJ, and that's when we got Jam Master Jay, who was the neighborhood DJ. He was like the best DJ in the neighborhood. Jay would set up his equipment in the park, and he'd plug it in into the light post, and then we would, we would play until a Cops would come and stop us. So actually, we came together as a professional group in 1982. And were you in high school, in college? Um, we was all in college. We was all in our first semester of college. Did you leave college once you started performing? Yep, we took a leave of absence and been absent ever since. What were your parents' reaction to taking a leave of absence to perform? Did they think you were making a big no, mistake? No, they was, they was mad. It was like, are you crazy? What are you doing? And, you know, even when they got a hint of um, me wanting to be a rapper as my career, as my job, you know, they was telling me stuff like, 
it's ridiculous. You better stay in school, and we're not paying all this money for you to go to St. John's for nothing. And as a matter of fact, when I went to record our first single, I didn't tell my parents because I knew they wouldn't have let me go. So they was outraged, you know? How did they find it's, out? Well, I had to come tell them where I was at for the last 15 hours. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I just left the house. It was a Sunday afternoon. I left the house about 1 o'clock, and I ain't come home in the morning until the next morning, like 5 a.m. in the morning. Did you play them the record? Did they like it? Yeah, I played them the record, and um, they didn't really like it till they heard it on the radio. No, was that It's Like That? Yeah, that was It's Like That. Great, let's hear it. This is Run DMC's first recording. That's Run DMC, their, their first recording. And my guest is Daryl McDaniels, who's the DMC in Run DMC. Now, when you started uh, performing, it was the, the big gold chain era. <laughs> right. Actually, we started that. Yeah, there's, Russell, there's some great pictures of you with giant big yeah, gold well, chains. Yeah. Like when we were saying Russell was a big part of that, Jay was always dressing like that. The way Run DMC dressed, Jay always dressed like that. So when Russell seen Jay, he said, that's how you're going to dress. And that's when the gold chains came into play. Jay had a gold chain before he even thought of me and Run DMC. Jay wore chains like that when he was in high school. <laughs> you know, it looks so funny now, but back then it was like so cool. What, what do you think it did for your image back then? Um, what it actually did show that we had money, you know, it showed that we had the big gold chain and the fancy car and that we were truly the superstars of the neighborhood, you well, know, because if you got a big chain and the other guy don't, you, you must be doing something. And, you know, it also brought a bad image to us because people that didn't know Run DMC, um, before we had an album cover, I thought we was just drug dealers. Because most of the drug dealers was wearing chains like that and driving in big cars, even before the rappers made it big. So were the chains solid gold? Um, well, me and Runs was semi-solid and Jay's was solid. You were teenagers when you started performing. How mm -hmm. did you handle fame when it first hit you and you were still in your teens? Oh, man. Fame hit us so quick. I mean... It's like now we got this thing that we say that uh, certain periods in our career we can't remember. And we call it days. And it was just like we was just in the days. It was just like everything happened so quick. You know, the first record. Then we did the rap album, the first rap album to go gold because nobody thought rap was going to sell. Then right after that, we got the first video on MTV. And that was like really a precedent because the only um, black star he was actually playing on MTV was Michael Jackson. Then we got on in. And then when um, Rockbox, which was the video that got on MTV, went into heavy rotation, rustling everybody down at the record company and that Rush Management was all excited. Y'all on MTV? And me and Runner J was like, what is MTV? Why are you guys so happy about this? And then um, the big tour, the Fresh Fresh tour, and we was going around selling out Madison Square Garden and all the big venues. It all happened so fast that, you know, it's, it's like it smacked us upside the head. You know, the money, the fame, and the fortune, it didn't go to our heads, but it smacked us upside our heads. 
What was it like to suddenly have a lot of money? Well, it was, man, it was, you know, me and Run always say, you know, when we was little, um, growing up and, you know, unless she was the star of the basketball team, the high school basketball team or the CYO basketball team or the neighborhood Hollis basketball team, um, none of the homeboys or the homegirls would give you any attention. And me and Ron always said, all we want is one pair of Adidas, but our parents wouldn't buy us Adidas because it was $40. It was like ridiculous to our parents. You know what I'm saying? They, they're middle class. So what's the point? Of, you know, we're going to buy you these $25 shoes, $20 shoes. If we could get them for $15, you are wearing those and you're going to be happy. And then when we um, became Run DMC, we could buy all the Adidas we wanted, all the Adidas suits we wanted. We could buy all the gold chains that we wanted. We could go buy the Cadillac that we wanted. And it was, like, just ridiculous. It was like God blessed us with everything that we wanted when we was, you know, growing up in elementary school. You know, he was at a point where you want to be like that guy who got every color pair of Adidas. And you want, you know, most, you know, you could tell the kids, a lot of the kids that was going to my school, they had jobs. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, we didn't have no jobs. The only job me and Ren ever had was um, pushing um, shopping carts for the supermarket, giving out circulars. And that was like twice, a, you know, twice a week. But most of our friends, they had nine to fives and they was out there, you know, working and getting a lot of money. So every month, if something new came out, they could get it. So when we got money, it became we could get anything and everything. And we, as a matter of fact, we had stuff before it even came out because people started giving us stuff. So you you just started acquiring everything you could. Yeah, exactly. Everything that we ever wanted, we was able to get. Well, you know, you mentioned Adidas, and of course, you have a very famous record called "My Adidas." Um, uh-huh. Before we hear it, why don't you say a little bit about coming up with this rap? Well, it's real funny. Actually, um, Run's brother Russell Simmons came up with the idea. He like put it in the air. One day, he said, "Y'all need to make a record about your Adidas and how y'all come from Hollis." And then the next day, you know, me and Run, we had the pen and pad out and we was writing this record. So we did the record even before we was um, approached by Adidas to, um, you know, for the um, promotional deal and stuff like that, for the endorsement. And the record came out and then in 1986, you know, we was really the biggest thing going on in music. And an Adidas representative came to Madison Square Garden and... um. On that show, Adidas was the first record that we did. And before we did it, we said, whoever got on Adidas, um, take one shoe off and hold it up. And the whole Madison Square Garden held up a, uh, held up the Adidas. And when the Adidas representative seen us, he was like, y'all guys got an endorsement. It's going to be big. You're going to be the first non-athletic group to um, get a major endorsement with an af- athletic company. And that was, like, really cool. But um, we made the record because we always just rapped about anything and everything. And we just gave a tribute to our Adidas saying, we're ready, sneakers for life, whatever. We don't care about Nike. We don't care about Bally. We don't care about nothing. Adidas are it forever. Daryl McDaniels is the co-founder of Run DMC. Here's my Adidas. My Adidas walk through cops and doors and roam all over Coliseum floors. I stepped on stage at Live Aid. All the people gave and the poor got paid.
We're listening to my 1997 interview with Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC. We'll hear more after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox. Discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Selling your car? Visit Carvana and enter your license plate or VIN. Answer a few quick questions and you can get a real offer in seconds. When you finalize your offer, Carvana will pick it up so you never have to leave the comfort of home. Visit Carvana.com or download the app. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when... That couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's get back to my 1997 interview with Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC, one of the early rap groups to break into the mainstream. When we left off, we were talking about the way the group dressed, with its gold chains and Adidas sneakers, and the impression it made on their fans and how they dressed. Now, how did it feel to see so many of your fans copying you? I mean, on the one hand, it can make you feel really, you know, proud and big and everything. On the other hand, it can really make you wonder about the independent thinking. <laughs> of, yeah, of well, people. actually, you know, my partner Run, he was more excited about that. Like, wow, yo, look, we're the big. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, um, from a record-selling tip, it's, you know, it signified that, oh, wow, we're doing really great. Right. But then on another tip, you know, I was, like, kind of bugged. I liked it when rap was more, um, everybody was more themselves, but we all could relate to the music. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And And now, I mean, the same way that um, people did that when we had Adidas out is the same way people are doing the fans are treating you know Tupac records and Biggie records and Snoop Dogg records they're taking a lot of stuff these rappers are saying seriously like back then if you had a pair of Adidas and you had an Adidas suit and a big old chain and a hat or maybe the glasses you know the gazelle glasses like I used to wear you was down with rapping hip hop now you gotta have a gat which is a gun and you gotta smack your you know your hoe or your bitch excuse my language but you gotta smack her and you gotta have all these women and you gotta have a car and you gotta have this rough image you know what i'm saying you gotta drink champagne and smoke blunts and and spend all this money so the same thing the same effect that we had on the fans back then is the same way rap is affecting the fans now but it's not in a positive way and you know a lot of the groups that's out now like it surprised me and it made me feel good when uh, martin lawrence who's a comedian, Chris Rock, who's a comedian, you know, at the two times that I met him, they came up to me and said, D, because of Run DMC, I am what I am today. So that's good because they didn't want to be a rapper like DMC and dress like me, but we um, inspired them to be what they wanted to be. They looked at us and said, I can do what I want to be. And um, it really hit me when Boys the Men at the Grammys, Boys the Men came up to me and said, we're doing this because of y'all. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, wow. You know, that's the type of effect mm-hmm. I want to have. I don't mm-hmm. want everybody trying to be Run DMC. 
You know, and it's bad if everybody's trying to be Tupac or everybody's trying to be Biggie. Um, what these guys do represent is out of the hood, out of poverty or out of crime or out of um, a single parent home or coming out of jail, you can be something. And that's what's good to represent. But you don't got to be the same gun-toting, reefer-smoking, champagne-drinking person as this rapper is. And that was that was, that's confusing to the parents because the parents get scared okay my son likes Tupac but this is what Tupac did last week I don't want my son to do that was there ever any pressure on you from producers or record companies to to harden your image to make it more hardcore no but we we felt a pressure on ourselves um in 1990 we made an album called back from hell and on his Back From Hell album, it was like the first album we ever really used profanity. And it was like the first album we ever really came at everybody else in the industry. It was, um, you know, the first album where we kind of um, degraded women. You know, we didn't really talk bad like most records did, but we started talking. We started, you know, straying that way. And that was like one of our worst albums. So we learned a big lesson from that. I mean, that album was like a flop for Run DMC. It only sold maybe 250,000 copies. Um, That was the year everybody was saying Run DMC was over. You know what I'm saying? Because we strayed from what we was really about. Even though we were still doing live shows, we made this album, which was trying to go with the flow of the times. Mm -hmm. When keeping it real is being real to yourself and staying who you are. No, I know that you're a Christian. Were, were, was there like a change in your life where you, you were born again? or, or yeah. kind of uh-huh. <laughs> right around that time. I mean, you know, the records wasn't selling. Everybody was saying we was over. Um, you know, um, Run was smoking a lot of reefer. I was drinking a lot of beer. Um, things wasn't well within the group. You know, people was like saying, yo, Run DMC is over. You know, their time is over. And that was like really a downtime. And, you know, with anybody, when it's time to, um, well, not time, when you are down and out on your deathbed, every, I don't care who you are, you're going to scream out to God, you know, and he's going to answer and it's up for you to answer his calling. And, you know, basically it was nowhere else we could turn but to God, you know, God help us. You know, and we was like, yo, we're very thankful for everything that happened and this and that. And if only we could, you know, just get you know, get back to what we was all about. But we had to make that adjustment in our minds ourselves. You know what I'm saying? But it was like really a downtime. I mean, the women, it was like a, the worst time for Run DMC of sex, drugs and rock and roll. You know, all that stuff that you think when I'm not going to go that way, I'm not going to happen to us. And it was like really a bad time for us. And so when you uh, when you were born again, how did that change your music and your lifestyle? Well, it, you know, it cleaned up our lives. We stopped smoking reefer, stopped drinking beer, stopped sleeping with every, you know, um, every groupie that you know and stopped running around with the drug dealers in the wrong crowd. And, you know, that's why we named the record Down With The King because we said, wow, we're the only rap group that's been here for, um, you know, at the time we was out for 10 years. We're the only rap group that's been together for um, 10 years. Um, everybody else in the business broke up and re- and we re- we realized that we had a marriage here. And we was like, yo, this is really like a marriage because we're still here. Even though our popularity was down, people still gave us respect. So we was like, all right, we're going to dedicate one of these records on this album to God. And that, was, that record became the single and, and that single became the name of the album down with the king down with the king 
Why don't we hear that? Okay. I'm taking the tour. I'm wrecking the land. I keep it hardcore because it's dope, man. These are the roughest, toughest words I ever wrote down. Not meant for a hole like a slow jam. Check it. Sucker MCs could never swing with D. Because of all the things that I bring with me. Only G.O.D. could be a king to me. And if the G.O.D. be in me, then a king I'll be. The microphone is granted when it's handed to me. I was planted on this planet and I plan to MC. The MC fiends only seem to agree that I rock of the world and a society. I rage on the stages with a tuna verse. I give praises from these pages to the universe. My voice is raw, my lyrics is long. I keep it hardcore like you never saw you wanna be. You wanna be. The group has been together, well, you've been recording since, what, 1982? Yeah. And started performing even before that. Yeah. Extraordinarily long, I mean, for any group, but but particularly, I think, in the world of rap. Yeah, it's ridiculous. How do you think you managed to stay together that long? Um, um, wow, that's really a good question. The reason why we stayed together that long... Because we never let the fortune and fame take away from the true art form of what rapping and emceeing means to us. Meaning that if we never made it as Run DMC, and Run, when he was going to college, he was studying mortuary science. I was studying business management, but then I would have had to change because I wanted to go into architecture. And Jay was studying business management. So even if we had wife and kids working nine to fives with families, on the weekends, on holidays, on days off, we're going to get together in the park at Jay's birthday party, at our son's birthday party, and we're going to DJ and rap and scratch. So we never lost that desire of... We never let um, the rap become a thing as we got to get money with this thing. We always like really doing it. We always like really doing a live show. And we always like, um, you know... Um, making fun lyrics or making lyrics that mean something. We never let um, the fortune take away from the art form or the meaning of, you know, the culture of hip-hop, what hip-hop really stands for. A lot of rap groups um, really uh, brag about their neighborhood, often bragging about how, how tough it is. Yeah. Uh, what was your neighborhood like, Hollis, Queens? Uh, Hollis, Queens was, um, you know, it was a middle-class, hard-working neighborhood, um, it had a lot of educated people there, but you also had, you know, violence and drugs and prostitution and murder and rape and robbery right on the corner. You know, it's just good that we came from good families who made sure we went to school, didn't play hooky or run with the wrong crowd. So you had good and bad going on at the same time, which is true for every neighborhood. But some places have more poverty than other places, and people tend to let the their surroundings suppress them. It was like we always, regardless of what's going on, if we didn't have a dollar in our pocket or if we did have the dollar in our pocket, we were still happy. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now, did you ever feel like you had to cover up the fact that your neighborhood was pretty middle class and that your pa- parents wouldn't let you play hooky? Nah, it was no way we could hide it because that was something the reporters made known to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, because they thought it was a big thing. All right, here you got this rap group making all this money, um, running around talking about their cars and, you know, how good they are. And, you know, they're selling a lot of records. And, you know, it was a thing where rap was supposed to be only done by, you know, people 
from the ghetto. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because, mm-hmm. you know, Grandmaster Flash and them, they came from the heart of the Bronx. In Africa, Bambada, they was from Bronx and Manhattan. They was from the ghetto. You know what I'm saying? Apartment buildings and broken glass everywhere. People's a subway. We came from Hollis, Queens, where you got separate houses, grads, backyards, cookout, Catholic school, and all this other stuff going on. But, um, you know, we wanted people to know, you know, my mother and father, Jay's mother and father, runs my hardworking, educated people. But then you had the people that, you know, lived in the middle of the block. You know, they had to rob and steal for the next meal. But um, a lot of the press wanted to emphasize, I guess they wanted to let the world know that, these guys are fronting. They might look tough and they might talk tough on their record, but they're middle-class, Catholic school, nice guys. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking with us. We're out of time. I wish we weren't, but we, we got to go. Well, thanks <laughs> so, for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for, 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 for talking with us. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC recorded in 1997. Coming up, LL Cool J, another of the early rappers to achieve commercial success. This is Fresh Air. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR. And I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. The next interview in our hip-hop history series is with LL Cool J, another early rapper to have commercial success. He's had several platinum recordings and won two Grammys since he made his recording debut in 1984 at the age of 16. His first record was the first release for Def Jam. LL Cool J has also had a career in television, starring in NCIS Los Angeles. In 2017, LL Cool J became the first rapper to receive a Kennedy Center honor, and in 2021, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with an award for musical excellence. I spoke with him in 1997, after the publication of his memoir, I Make My Own Rules. LL Cool J began rapping at the age of 10, and when he was 11, his grandparents bought him two turntables and a mixer so he could make demo tapes at home. His first hit, I Need a Beat, grew out of one of those home tapes. Let's hear it. Your motivation, your aid, a percussion. There's no category 
LL Cool J, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you very much. Um, you were still in high school, I think, when this record came out. Yeah, I was 16 years old. So what was it like, you know, going to high school and having a hit record at the same time? It was funny because it was a lot of jealousy. A lot of guys tried to pick on me. A lot of people tried to tell me, oh, you're not going to make it. You're lying. That's not your record. You're not telling the truth. I went through a lot of different things, but uh, I, I felt like I wanted to persevere. I said, you know what? This music is for me. I like it. I enjoy it. I appreciate being able to express myself artistically. And I kept at it. But it was interesting, you know, because uh, I got to a point where I was focusing more on the music than I was on my schoolwork, which in the long run didn't benefit me that greatly. You know, it was cool that I concentrated on the music and it was cool that I made a decision to go after it because it did end up being something that I definitely, a good thing in my life. However, if I would have concentrated in school more, I think a lot of things that happened financially, especially during the middle years so far, like a few years ago, wouldn't have happened if I had concentrated more in school. So it's interesting for kids, you know, they can want to be stars and they can want to be popular and they can want to make music and do all these things. But if you don't get an education, it's not going to benefit you anyway. Because at the end of the day, you, you can't trust the people around you to make decisions for you. You have to be able to make the decisions yourself. Well, I think your grandmother gave you an ultimatum when you were in high school. Either you stay in school or you get out of the house. She did. So you ended she up did. leaving the house. And you say you were homeless for a couple of weeks and you slept on the, on the trains for a while until... Um, yeah, I did. Didn't you have any money yet? No, no, I didn't. Actually, what happened was I recorded my first song. Um, it did okay. And uh, after I stopped doing the shows, I didn't have any income. So I, I had no money. I remember getting a room in Brooklyn that was $40 a week and struggling to keep it, you know, because it was just so hard to, you know, pay that $40 a week. And uh, and we had, you know, a bathroom that everybody in the town, in the brownstone shared. But it was real tough. So, no, the finances weren't there. The finances didn't really come until the first album. Okay. And even then, I didn't know what to do with the money. So it was, you know, it's kind of a strange paradox. You know, I started you know, doing different things and doing different shows. But because of the people that I was involved with and the people that were involved with my financial and economic life, I didn't, and myself, of course, I didn't benefit, you know, greatly from, you know, the, the money that was generated. It sounds like early on you spent the money on uh, cars and just really showy, flashy things. Yeah, I did. I, I think that my focus was a little lost. I was kind of caught up in the materialistic aspect of, you know, making music and being an entertainer. Now, tell me how you feel when you look back at old photos of yourself and see see a picture of you with that really thick, big gold chain. <laughs> the really thick, big gold chain? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny and it's humorous, but it was in style at the time. I mean, you know, it's like John Travolta looking back at that white suit in Saturday Night Fever. It was, <laughs> it was bananas. <laughs> it was ridiculous, you know what I'm saying? But um, I, I, feel, I feel like if you had come to me and asked, I could have told you it was going to look really dated eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would have went with the jeans and T-shirt thing. That might have worked back then, but you know... <laughs> Hey, we <laughs> we live and learn. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me how you kind of created your style in terms of your your, your image, your look early on. Uh, well, what it was was it wasn't even me creating my style. It was like I would go up to Jamaica Avenue, which was the place to shop in Queens in the area that I lived, and I would buy the clothes that every other teenager bought. 
and every other teenager wore, and I would just happen to be wearing them on TV or wearing them on an album cover. And then when I started generating some money, I was able to buy some of the things that most would consider luxuries at the time, the gold chains, the car, the extras, the new sneakers, you know, the extra hat. And, you know, that's all I did, you know. And then it became because I was at the forefront of a new music movement or one of the people involved at the beginning, it became like a trend-setting fashion thing. But I never planned for it to be like that. Um, You had like the first big rap ballad, I Need Love. What made you think of doing a rap ballad? Rap is, for the most part, a music that's either about, you know, bragging how great you are, or how tough you are, or how good you are at making love. But there aren't a lot of, like, love ballads within the genre. <laughs> that was funny. Um, I think that, uh, for me, I always looked at rap music as a way to express a vehicle to express my feelings and my emotions. You know, coming from a abusive childhood, rap music was a thing that, helped me to feel empowered it helped me to kind of feel a sense of power and a sense of self-worth that I wasn't feeling at home or wasn't feeling when I wasn't involved with rap music so this art was an escape for me I Need Love was just another expression of that I was seven I was 17 18 years old and I really felt like I needed love I felt like love was important being you know having gone through all the things that I had gone through and I never looked at it as a opportunity to humble myself. I never looked at it as a chance to do something soft or sensitive. I just looked at it as a way to express my emotions, my sincere emotions and on an artistic level. So I did what I really felt inside. You know, in your book you say that in a way this record was a risk because you could have looked soft. Uh, and I was wondering, gee, well, what about, you know, like Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye and Al Green and it's all funny. that the kind of great aching well, ballads of soul music and rhythm I, and blues. Yeah. yeah I never ahead. felt I never felt like me personally, I never felt like I could look soft. I think that the at the time a lot of people around me felt like there was some chance of this record making, you know, me look soft or something like that. But that's something that never really entered my mind. I never really was concerned with that. You know, I had no fear when I did it. And uh I just put it out there. Well, this is LL Cool J, I Need Love. When I'm alone in my room, sometimes I stare at the wall and in the back of my mind I hear my conscience call telling me I need a girl who's as sweet as a dove. For the first time in my life, I see I need love. There I was, giggling about the games that I had played with many hearts and I'm not saying no names. Then the thought occurred, teardrops made my eyes burn because I said to myself, look what you've done to her. I can feel it inside, I can't explain how it feels. All I know is that I'm never dishing of the raw deal, playing make-believe, pretending that I'm true. Holding in my laugh as I say that I love you Saying I'm more, kissing you on the ear Whispering I love you and I'll always be here Although I often reminisce, I can't believe that I found A desire for true love floating around Inside my soul, because my soul is cold One half of me deserves to be this way till I'm old But the other half needs affection and joy And the warmth that is created by a girl and a boy I need love LL Cool J, recorded in 1997. Coming up, the story behind the catchy bass and guitar groove on the first hit rap record, Rapper's Delight. That groove was borrowed from Sheik's hit disco record, Good Times. We'll hear from Sheik's guitarist, Nile Rogers. This is Fresh Air. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? 
This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. If you're already a Fresh Air Plus supporter, you may have heard Terry talking about the first daily national broadcast of the show in 1987. It was still like making a national debut both to the audience and to program directors because we weren't on that many stations to start with. Dave Davies talking about his job driving a cab. This is a fascinating city of many diverse neighborhoods, and it was fun to just tool around in a cab all day. Or archival interviews with people like Arthur Miller, Nina Simone, and Audrey Hepburn. Timing you can't rehearse. It's an Mm -hmm. instinct. Mm -hmm. Especially comedy. I mean, that's what made Carrie unique. That's why there haven't been a whole lot of Carrie Grants. Are you not a Fresh Air Plus supporter yet? You could be. Subscribe on plus.npr.org or on Apple Podcasts. The song credited with being the first hip-hop recording to get wide radio play and cross over to a white audience was the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight, which came out in 1979. One reason why it was so catchy was the bass and guitar groove, which was borrowed from the disco hit Good Times by the group Chic. Chic's guitarist, who came up with the rhythm line, was Niall Rogers. We're about to hear Niall Rogers tell the story of how that happened. Sheik's other disco hits included Dance, Dance, Dance and The Freak. Niall Rogers also produced Madonna's album Like a Virgin, David Bowie's Let's Dance, Sister Sledge's We Are Family, and Diana Ross's album Diana. Here's an excerpt of my 1996 interview with Niall Rogers. I want to play a hit that Sheik had that um, had the bass line that everybody wanted. <laughs> and I'm thinking, of course, of Good Times. This is one of the most borrowed bass lines in, in, in recent music. Yeah. Let's hear it, and then you could tell us how you came up with this rhythm. Sure. Good Times, the band Chic. My guest now, Rogers, co-founded the band and was the guitarist. So how did, how did you uh, come up with this rhythm? Well, the interesting thing about this song is that um, the day that I wrote Good Times, um, 
I was actually in the studio with uh, our drummer, Tony Thompson at the time, and the bass player from Queen, uh, John Deacon. And we were sitting in there and we were hanging out. And John was in the studio and Tony and I were in the, in the um, actually John was in the control room and Tony and I were in the studio just vamping on the groove. And Bernard Edwards, the bass player, was late. So, uh, you know, Tony and I are playing and, uh, and Bernard walks in and he says to the engineer, he says, damn, what's that they're playing? The engineer says, I don't know, that's just something Niall came up with this morning. And Bernard w- ran into the studio, and he started fooling around with the bass, and I was screaming to him over the volume to walk through it. And he came up with that classic bass line. And the reason why I mentioned John being there, because Queen did the song called Another One Bites the Dust. Um, and, uh, and everybody says, man, did they, how, you know, did they steal that bass line? Were you offended? I said, hey, he was in the studio when we wrote it. You know, I mean, I, you know, I was flattered. I the thing is, musicians have always borrowed from other musicians since the beginning of time. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I wasn't pissed off or anything. I thought to myself, well, how could he not be effective? We thought it was real cool. That's interesting. I had no idea he was actually there while, while it was being done. Now, of course, that line was also used, sampled, I believe, in Rapper's Delight, which was, uh, I think, the first rap hit. Yeah. Featuring uh, the Sugar Hill Gang. Well, let me play it first. That's the Sugar Hill Gang using the uh, bass and guitar line that uh, you and Bernard Edwards came up with for your record Good Times. What was, how did you first hear this and what was your reaction when you did? Now, this is funny. When I first heard Rapper's Delight, I was at a club in New York, uh, a disco, if you will, called Leviticus. Um, and the DJ was a good friend of mine, and he played this song. Um, the thing is that in those days, DJs, at least the good ones, would rap over their favorite records. So I thought that he was doing that. I had no idea that uh, he was actually playing a record. I thought he was in the booth with a couple of his buddies, and they were kicking this rhyme over the record. And then... Um, uh, you know, I noticed that it was not uh, Bernard and myself playing. Um, in fact, it was our riff, but it was not us playing. Well, I could tell, you know, I could tell right away that it wasn't us. But but um, the thing is that it's not, this is something that's not known to a lot of people. In Back in the old days, what we used to do is we would go into a little recording studio and we would record the groove of our favorite record, make tape loops and sell them to DJs. And they'd go around hmm. playing it at clubs. That's how we got our start as producers. We'd take our favorite songs, go into a recording studio, record the vamp, and put other stuff over it so we could have extended records of the things that we liked. In the dance days, in the disco days, as most people call it now, um, the longer a song went on, the happier the people were. So uh, when we first heard Rapper's Delight, we thought that it was just a rhythm section that recorded our, our groove and that the DJ who was there on the spot was rapping over the record. Then when he told us that he bought it in Harlem, I went, wow, let me get a copy. He gave me a copy, and I noticed an interesting thing when I got it home. I played the record, and I realized that they had sampled 
our string line. That it, they didn't sample the guitar and the bass line, they just played that. But what they did was they took our record, this is before sampling, they took our record and put it on a turntable, and whenever the strings go, ew, they took our record and spun it in sync and went, ew. And I said, whoa, that's copyright infringement. You can't do that. What the hell? I'm going to pay $40,000 for a string session, and you can just take my record and get away with it and go, wow. So that's, that was the big controversy with that. Did you sue? Sure we sued. Did you win? Of course we won. <laughs> of course. That, you couldn't take a product and just... I mean, this was, the, this was before sampling. You know, no one, there were no devices to do this. They just had a DJ with turntables live in the studio, and they just figured, well, what the hell? We're not going to spend any money and get a whole big orchestra and simulate that. We'll just do it. We'll just take their record. Well, did, did you like the record? I loved the record. Uh-huh. It was one of my favorite records. It's still one of my favorite records of all time. I thought it was very clever and inventive. And, uh, I mean, you know, early rap records to me, were unbelievable, like, you know, groups like Sequence and stuff like that, Sugar Hill Gang. I, you know, they were really, they were the same as any other R&B records. They were bands that played a groove and the rappers would rap over the grooves. Um, it only became later on that um, it was based on samples and loops. Um, and I think these records are great. Nail Rogers is a guitarist, record producer, and co-founder of the group Chic. Our interview was recorded in 1996. Our Hip Hop History series continues tomorrow, featuring interviews from our archive with Ice-T, one of the early gangster rappers. He went on to star as a detective in Law & Order, SVU. And we'll hear from Queen Latifah, the first female rap solo artist to earn a gold album. She now stars in the TV series The Equalizer. I hope you'll join us. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. Meet their body care breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum, for 24 hours of hydration. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. It tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day.